Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two bodyguards of Byzantine oral histories. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Montauk. I could have done. I don't know. I, I, that one, I, that one didn't feel so good to me. We'll, we'll we'll get it back. I really just wanted to open this up and be like, "Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Inversion." I'm me, I, I. <laughs> putting the the proverbial uh, cart ahead of the horse. There, I have a whole preamble. Forget it. We're we're a hundred episodes in. I'm, I don't give a shit anymore. Uh, we're talking about Dolly Parton and Whitney Houston's "I Will Always Love You." I love I love Dolly Parton. Um, We've never really discussed this. I didn't know how deep oh, does your love, love for Dolly her. go? So deep, fathoms. She's like probably the only. I mean, she. Uh, first of all, you know, you know my love of brassy Southern women. <laughs> That's true. That is true. I think of more um, Reba though than Dolly. I, I do like Reba, but yeah. no, Dolly's. I I think she's so beautiful and you know such an incredible songwriter. And kind of the the record that I think that I love the most from her is the trio. Have you ever heard that record? She, she with has... Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt. Yes, that's right. Incredible record. And there's a record that she does with um, Chet Atkins. Uh, and she does do i ever cross your mind on there and she does oh, like wow. and, and her like spoken word interjections on that make my heart sing like i'm a six-year-old boy she's like at one point she's like she's like uh she's like she does the finger picking part and she's like see that that good part on there ain't all chet <laughs> and then at the end of it the end of it it just warms my heart anew every time because she just goes uh they like the song raps and and she just she laughs and she just goes I love you and I'm always like she's talking to me 
Wait, I can't believe you said that she makes your heart sing like a six-year-old boy because I must have told you this at some point over the course of our friendship, maybe even on one of these shows. My first sort of, I don't know if you'd call it a crush. It was an audio crush. It was the sound of Dolly Parton who I used to call Polly Darton as a five-year-old <laughs> kid, singing Sleigh Ride on one of the Time Life Christmas like compilation albums. That's really funny. And I just thought, like, that voice, like, I had no idea what she looked like, but that voice, I just thought was the most beautiful voice I had ever heard. And it was a lot of, like you said, like, spoken word, little interjections at points. And she's I, just so endlessly charming, man. She's mm. just such a... I, I mean, this is the second time in comparison I made this in two weeks, but she's like Beyonce. Like, just being, being the so a songwriter musician, singer, businesswoman, really like the business side of things. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about how like, you know, she really pretty early on was like, no, I need to have my publishing. Like I need to be in charge of my business. And, and, you know, we got a vaccine partially out of Dolly. Like she like, just, and, and she's, she given away a million books or was it a billion? There was some phenomenal number of books she's given away to oh, children. Yeah her, her, yeah. her literacy thing. Yeah. She's just a, a force of good in the world. Um, and, you know, not to... And that Whitney Houston was no slouch either. <laughs> you know, not for nothing, I mean, but... Yeah, that that lady could sing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I uh, My, like, skyscraper-voiced, like, R&B singer era is, a, you know, a good 10 to 20, 30 even years before Whitney. But, I, I mean, we grew up in her imperial era, sort of. So, like... I definitely remember, you know, the national anthem performance, this song, Bodyguard, and then, and then the darkness. That's funny. <laughs> I remember mostly the darkness. I, I was, oh, more, yeah. Mariah Carey was the one who was forefront for me. Mm. Um, they're different. They're different. Yeah. I mean, Whitney's thing is, I, I think Whitney's has that, like, she's like a torch singer a little mm. bit more than agility. Um, and cause I don't think of her as a big run person, even though she grew up in like the church and, you know, in That's the Houston family. But I, 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 her in the, the USA track suit is so iconic. At the Super Bowl. The yeah. Anthem. Yeah. Like um, days after the, uh, Iraq one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Iraq one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. Great song. Great song from both of them. Um, incredible American women in every way. What do you have to say about this? I mean, this the, one. The only thing that I really have to say that we haven't touched on really goes back to my days as a wedding DJ, where a really disproportionate number of people would insist on me playing I Will Always Love You at the wedding reception. It's definitely got to be one of the most all-time like, like misunderstood songs. Yeah, like like yeah, up there with Bruce really Springsteen's the Born in the USA. Yeah. yeah. It was I Will Always Love You and Every Breath You Take were the two songs. That's the classic, right? Yeah, like, that I never people... wanted to play because I was like, have you ever really listened to the lyrics for this? And it was yeah. always some angry groom, couple <laughs> drinks in, sweaty, just sort of coming up to me, like insisting I play it. And I would. But, uh... It's a tough sell to wedding. Did you skip the acapella part? Depends. Sometimes it would be like the wedding party would come into that. And then oh, for the big okay. moment, the bride and groom would, would come. Which, again, the fact that that's the song that you, like, have your first dance to. It's like, man, yeah. like, people don't listen to lyrics. No, no. And it's a dirge, too. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, that's what's so funny when we get to why they, what song they wanted to make work with this arrangement. Um, and sort of the, the musical aspects of it is just like, but that's gotta be one of the all time greatest snare hits too, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. 
Can I tell you a secret? If you put a gun to my head, I don't think I would be able to sing you the verses of I Would Love You. I don't. There's no verse. Yeah, Canonically, there's no verse. It's the chorus. That's it. That's all. It's funny because it it is really a song that relies on the charms of the person singing it to get over on it. And uh, one of the interviews that I read about it that I I didn't really put into this was how many people, some UK, uh, you know, one of their endless processions of singing talent garbage shows one of the judges being like do you know how many people come in and sing this as their audition song or want to make it their big like piece on the on the show and we just always try and talk them out of it because a it is more of a slog than you think it's like the person who does like total eclipse of the heart at karaoke like the song is longer than you think it is harder than you think it is and the part that it sticks out in everyone's mind is the phenomenally athletic chorus that is really hard to nail and and the rest of it yeah. is just boring as hell. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I I have this parlor obsession with songs that are one good idea. <laughs> like I think the last. I think what actually sparked it was uh, Steve Winwood's um, uh, Higher Love. Oh yeah. Which also, also coincidentally a Whitney song. Yeah, but like oh, go ahead wow. and yeah. go ahead and name any part of that song that isn't that awesome chorus. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um. I don't know. I don't know. We have a, a, a segue. Uh, f- well, from the complicated relationship Parton had with the man who inspired the song to the fact that it wasn't even originally intended for the bodyguard to its world conquering success and long legacy. Here's everything you didn't know about. I will always love you. Dolly Parton's career at least in its early days, was pretty inextricable from another country legend named Porter, I barely knew her, Wagoner. Dolly was born in 1947, and she moved to Nashville the day after she graduated high school in in 1964. She signed a publishing deal pretty early, uh, the company called Combine Publishing, and wrote a bunch of hits for other artists, uh, with occasionally her uncle, Bill Owens, her songwriting partner, uh, Bill Phillips, Skeeter Davis. Uh, she had other songs recorded by Kitty Wells, Hank Williams Jr. So she had some pretty, you know, some success as far as songwriting. And she signed with Monument Records a year later, 1965, when she was 19. Um, only one of her singles from this time, though, charted. And she didn't really have much success until 1967's Hello, I'm Dolly, which uh, collected a bunch of these singles. Her first big one, which she didn't even write, Dumb Blonde. Um, I have a question for you. Hello, I'm Dolly. Um, Is that a, a Johnny Cash nod? I thought it would. It was Hello, Dolly, that. the musical. Oh, that's equally good. Oh. <laughs> I mean, Dolly Parton uh, is kind of, in really every way, both visually and spiritually, the inverse of the man in black, Johnny Cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when you consider that she she was having trouble early in this era because people made fun of her voice all the time. They were That's like, crazy to me. This, you know, she's a soprano and she's has a very girly sounding voice. Was the big knock, you know? They wanted this kind of more uh, chanteuse kind of torch singer, Tammy Wynette kind of. Yeah, I guess. I it seems so bizarre given that we know she went on to become like the, the sound biggest, of country the, music. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I guess I and this was 
a lot of people said this, a lot of industry people, and she said this, that people were just like, yeah, they didn't think my voice was was suited to this. And she told uh, Jad Abramad for the uh, WNYC podcast, Dolly's America, that things were so dire, she would uh, pick up discarded scraps of food from um, room service trays in hotels to make ends meet. She said, I would get whatever little savable items of food there were, and then I would get a jar of mustard and a jar of ketchup. You can work wonders, comma, make little soups. <sighs> There's that... a heartbreaking image for you. That should go up next to the Coat of Many Colors songs. It's Dolly Parton's room <laughs> service ketchup and mustard soup <laughs> scrap meal. <laughs> that one's a little harder to make into a full song. Dolly, get back to me. We'll write that one together. Um, one guy, though, who was thriving was Porter, I barely knew her, Wagoner. Born in Missouri. Uh, Porter Wagner, Porter Wagner was known as Mr. Grand Ole Opry for the amount of times that he performed there. He had an early televised smash hit show with his eponymous show. Uh, he's one of the guys who really went to town on the nudie suit look. Um, for those not in the know, the nudie suit is not named for being naked. is not a is not a flesh toned suit. It is a the the brightly colored garish um heavily embroidered em- yeah embroidered and rhinestoned suit they're called that because the designer was named Nudie Khan um and Porter had a show from 1960 to 1981 that at its peak was featured in over 100 different markets an average viewership of 3 million people um and this is you know this is in the 50s and 60s so those are those are for a regional Nashville, for a Nashville country show, those are crazy. I want to say, I don't actually know this for sure, but I want to say that, like, when Johnny Cash got his own show and Mm. when, like, you know, that was the model that they were trying to go with. So, as I mentioned, Dolly's first hit was called Dumb Blonde, and when she performed it on TV, not on his show, Porter Wagner called her, and uh, he called her up and invited her over to his office, and she showed up with her guitar because she thought she was being called to songwrite. Um, at the time, his partner, his on-air partner, was a woman named Norma Jean, and Dolly said, he told me that Norma Jean was leaving the show. Uh, this is to WMIC. She said, the story at the time was that she was going to get married and move back to Oklahoma City. And so then and there, he offers her Norma Jean's job at a salary of $60,000 a year, which is <laughs> more money than I made at my first salary job in New York. <laughs> and... Uh, more money than she had ever seen in her life, certainly. It has also been floated that uh, Wagner and Norma Jean were having an affair that went wrong, which is interesting when you consider the same rumors later surrounded him and Dolly. Um, her first appearance on his show was September 5th, 1967, and they basically first tried to just kind of slot her into the role that Norma Jean had. Now, uh, I'm paraphrasing an interview that I think was also done on the WNYC show. But at the time, Nashville music execs were like, women buy country records. That is our dominant audience. But women don't want to hear other women sing. But we need to have a female surrogate on our shows and stuff. So they would have Porter Wagner come on and she would like banter with him. And then they would like throw to her and have her do like a gospel song or like a novelty hit, like something light and frothy before they actually cut, you know, got onto the the meat of the show, which was him or his other male guests. Um, what a weird business model. Just, all right, 
women like this music, women don't like to listen to women. Like just the, the, the sweeping generalizations upon sweeping generalizations. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, Nashville yeah. in the 60s. I know, right? But Dolly was not a hit immediately. Um, country music DJ and TV host Ralph Emery told WNYC, Dolly told me, I think her first road date with the Porter Wagoner show, she came on stage and she got booed. When she came off stage, she was crying. And admirably, on Wagoner's part, he didn't replace her. Uh, he actually elevated her like Olivia Newton-John in who is a backup singer for a British TV show and then was elevated to duet partner and subsequently outshone him uh Porter Wagner essentially pushed Dolly as his new duet partner and lightning struck uh people compared the two of them the chemistry that they had not just on air because Dolly is a Dolly is a champ Dolly has chemistry with Jimmy Fallon which is difficult <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, she, I mean, she's so lightning quick and so funny and so charming, but their musical chemistry, people, you know, people talk about Fred Astaire, Ginger Roger, Spencer Tracy, and Catherine Hepburn. He was old enough to be her dad. He was almost twice her age, but most of their songs played up on the, the romantic kind of overtones and chemistry, and especially in an interesting musical way. You know, when you think of like a lot of the Nashville Harmonies singing at the time, you are thinking of like the Jordanaires, like mm. that kind of close harmony, um, gospel, Southern gospel, not church gospel, uh, Southern gospel or barbershop quartet, real close, close style unison singing. Everly Brothers is another big comparison where the point is to blend the voices as uh, neatly as possible, as closely as possible. And that was not how Dolly and Wagon and Porter's um, duets went. I mean, essentially, she was a singing co-lead. She was mixed high uh, on the records, and their songs were basically back. And she would be singing harmony, but they were like dialogues. They were back and forths that were, you know, romantically themed. And they were a hit. People wrote into the show and said how much they loved Dolly. Then those people went and bought the records that they put out of their duets. And those people came to the road shows. And Porter got Dolly signed to RCA and produced her second solo album. And yeah, they just won award after award. They won the Vocal Group of the Year, the second ever Country Music Awards in 1968. But what happens is that, well, two things. Dolly Parton's songwriting really starts to pick up around this time. And she also starts to emerge from Porter's very lengthy shadow. And this caused some tension in their dynamic. Dolly later told WNYC, I had to be quiet around Porter because Porter was the star. I wasn't allowed to say a lot. And I didn't think it was my place to try to take. Within his show, it wasn't really something I would just stand out and do. He didn't do that as a woman. And you didn't do that as a professional person. And it was his show, not mine. At least until I went out on my own. Until, like I say, until I claimed and owned myself. I feel like reading Dolly's quotes without a Dolly accent is really a disservice to yeah. her and our listeners. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have one pre pre prepped. No. I love you. That's good. Uh, I try. <laughs> <laughs> She also told our friends at People Magazine in 2021, I think Porter had a real hard time after other people started recording my songs. And I was writing and I was getting to be pretty popular. And it was his show. I wasn't trying to hog it, but I just kind of carved out a little, you know, place for myself. There you go. There you got a little bit. A little place for myself. A little place for myself. Uh, <laughs> 
she wrote an insane amount, like something unlocked in her right around this time. I mean, she wrote an insane amount of songs. I think she's written, I mean, in the thousands, um, but around this time, it just went nuts. And and people talked about how not just prolific, but like, like she would write songs on laundry tickets, like the like, uh, Porter Wagoner's daughter says that she found a song that Dolly wrote on one of her dad's dry cleaning tickets for one of his nudie suits. So she was just writing all the time on tour buses and and going in. And, and a lot of them, you know, as we'll talk about in a second, like her contract with him ended up being that a lot of them were quote unquote his property and anything. But yeah, she, that's the big part of this is that she was already, she had already been a songwriter, but with the kind of increased profile and, and everything, she uh, really ramped that aspect of her artistry up. And this caused tension between them. She later said that she and Porter had, quote, a love-hate relationship. We fought like cats and dogs. We were just both very passionate people. There was no way I wasn't going to do what I was going to do, and no way I was going to not do what he thought I was going to do. And so by 1973, Dolly Parton had debuted her immortal Jolene on Porter's show, and her songs were hitting number one. All his were somewhere, you know, in the lower echelons of the top 40. And this was around the time when she really just wanted to strike out on her own. And she told people, when I was trying to leave Porter's show, I told him I'd stay five years. And it had been five, and then it was six, and then it was seven. And he was just having a real hard time because it was going to mess up his show. We were very bound and tied together in so many emotional ways, and he just wouldn't hear it. And she elaborated on this to WNYC. He would say, this is my damn show. And I'd say, I know, but this is my damn life. And we're not talking about the show. I'm talking about my life. I'm talking about my future. I can't stay here as the girl singer forever. I want an individual career. And I'm my own self. I didn't come to Nashville just to be part of a duet and to be a girl singer in somebody's group. I want my own band. I want my own show. I want my own dreams. He was like, I made you. And I said, yeah, you made me mad again. That's a great line. <laughs> I love, dude, she has so many like great, she could have been a stand-up comic, like in a different world yeah. where she was not like as talented of a songwriter and singer. She could have been like a quippy, like Branson, Missouri, Las Vegas, like, like she could have. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, um, yes. She could have had, yeah, yeah. yeah, I was going to say she could have, she could have eased, I mean, she did star in many movies and everything, but she is so funny on those shows. And I watched a bunch of clips of them of this period, and you can see, like, a sort of mean-spirited, like, chafing, at, he jokes about hitting her a lot. It's like, why are I oh. kind of <laughs> dancing around saying, um, and she just quickly comes back with stuff she's like you know if you hit me you, you better hope i never find out about it like just <laughs> she, she's she just is so quick and so funny um Sorry. I mean, what do we think about what do we think about the likelihood of uh, a a non-platonic relationship you know i don't know man for someone who has been in the public eye for so long there's like an admirably large part of her life people don't know about i mean like her husband is very possibly like uh three dogs in a trench coat um <laughs> he was like he's been seen in public like thrice and she married him this guy's name's carl thomas dean which there's a pub trivia answer for you uh yeah. and they were married in 1966 so like before she became a public figure really and still she married married to him yeah and yep. have you seen all the people who try and track down her um her tattoos I didn't know she had tattoos. What does she have? Exactly. Oh. <laughs> because she's always seen in long sleeves. 
Um, uh. But yeah, people have like analyzed uh, photos where the some of them have been sheer uh, or like certain levels of of see through, and she you could they've like zoomed in on different parts of her arms and to see if she actually there was a rumor that she had like full sleeve tattoos, and I don't think she does. But yeah, I mean that like the plastic surgery, she's obviously had surgery, allegedly, allegedly, obviously. Well, there's but, that famous line that she said, and I don't feel bad saying it because she's said it where, you know, it takes a lot, costs a lot of money to look this cheap. Look this cheap. Yeah. Again, just, in, you know, another of her classic sound bites. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is wild when you think about, I mean, it's like the Clint Eastwood thing we were talking about the other day where it's like, this dude has o- Oscars and one of the most iconic American actors of all time. And people don't know how many children he has. <laughs> It's just like a part of his personal life that they're like, I don't know, between six and eight. Who's to say? I mean, good for them. Like that they were yeah, able oh, to yeah, pull yeah, that yeah, off. Yeah yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, it's funny. So I don't know. What What do you think? What's the over under on, on them? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, boots. it sounds like I me. Mean, <laughs> as, as they would have said. Dolly's quote is better than anything I could come up with. Uh, she's obviously been asked about the specifics of their relationship. And she said in her memoir, I know that everybody that knows anything about me and Porter would like to know the true story of what happened to us. And nobody would like to know that more than me and Porter. <laughs> so it sounds like they have a a, uh, a complicated love that dare not speak its name. <laughs> but she's also described him at points. I mean, to piggyback off what you were saying earlier about all the terrible jokes on the TV show, she's also described him in several places as, quote, very much a male chauvinist pig. Imagine that in Dolly Parton's voice. <laughs> yeah. Either way, things got bad enough that in her words to WMIC, she said, I just finally thought I'm going to break myself if I don't go because all we were doing was fighting and it just wasn't working. I couldn't think. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. He wasn't happy either. I thought, this is just insane. We've got to do something. That's when I went in and said, I thought, he's not going to listen. We'd fought. I'd go home crying. And that's when I wrote, I will always love you and went back to sing it. So for years, it has been... Commonly repeated that Dolly wrote Jolene and I Will Always Love You on the same day, uh, which she has inevitably chased with the quip, I guess it was a good day, <laughs> because she said that in very many interviews. But in 2022, because she's she tells the same story. I mean, you know, I, I've I, heard that too. Yeah. Yeah. She tells the same story. She's found the demo tape that has both songs on it, and she filed paperwork for them around the same time. But in 2022, uh, during a talk with Adam Grant uh, on Clubhouse, of all places, she said, I don't really know if they were written in the same night. When we found an old tape, they were on the same cassette. So that could have been a few days apart. But they also wound up on the same album, and they were certainly written within a very short span of time. So there's that. But she put her entire relationship with Wagoner into this one song. Um, uh, I want to say the, something really quick. Sorry. Yeah. I'll place this in. I do think, I mean, this is nowhere near as good as uh, Jolene and I will always love you, but I've had it confirmed to me by the man himself that Peter Frampton wrote, baby, I love your way and show me the way on the same day. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way. I was trying to think of a way, something way to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Thanks. It took, it took me 30 seconds, but you know. I'm glad I interrupted you for that. <laughs> uh, I thought, do what you do best. Just write a song. So I wrote the song 
took it back in the next day. I said, Porter, sit down. I got something I have to sing to you. I'm sort of sliding into it. So I sang it. And he was sitting in his desk, and he was crying. Crying. Uh, that's crying. Crying. Uh, crying. One, one syllable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, that's in country music, the Ken, Ken Burns doc, she said. He said, it's the best thing you ever wrote. Okay, you can go, but only if I can produce that record. <laughs> only if I can and get he, me a little piece of that. Yeah. And he did, and the rest is history. And then in her autobiography, she wrote, As I left his office and began to drive toward my home out in Brentwood, it began to rain. So did I. Aww. I cried. I know. Not so much out of a sense of loss, but from the pain that almost always comes with change. Wow. It has a sad kind of freedom. Mm. Then I began to sing a song to myself. It's been a long, dark night, and I've been waiting for the morning. It's been a long, hard fight, but I can see a brand new day dawning. I've been looking for the sunshine. I ain't seen it in so long. Everything's going to work out just fine. Everything's going to be all right. That's been all wrong. I can see the light of a clear blue morning. And she says, I swear to you on my life, as I said that, the sky cleared up. It stopped raining. The sun came out. And before I got home, I had completely written the song, Light of a Clear Blue Morning. Um, I Will Always Love You came out in March of 1974 as the second single from her 13th solo album. Damn. In 10 years? Less. That is less than that. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, Hello yeah, yeah. on Dolly 67? Yeah. So seven years. 13 albums almost in almost two, a two albums a year. Wow. Good Lord. Yeah, man. Nashville didn't play. Nashville. And, uh, the single reached number four in Canada and number one on the Billboard Hot Country Songs. Uh, becomes one of the best-selling singles of 1974. The version that she cut uh, has some interesting guys playing on it. Buck Trent, who some people have credited with the invention of the electric banjo, uh, one of my favorite Nashville session legends, uh, a pianist named Hargus Pig Robbins, <laughs> which is one of the best country music names of all time. And most interestingly to me, a drummer named Larry London, who is this super well-regarded session drummer who people have compared to Hal Blaine, but he has the distinction of being one of, if not the only people I can think of who is a session drummer for both Nashville and Motown. Wow. His band, the somethings were the headliners, um, headliners, the first white band signed to Motown. So he took over from Motown when Benny Benjamin died or on some sessions anyway, and then wound up in Nashville. So that's wild to me. And <laughs> I can't say this with a straight face. Porter apparently took uh, what you've seen described in several places as six <laughs> weeks sitting by a lake mourning the loss of his partnership with Dolly, which I mean, who who among us? Well, yeah, that's one of the sound bites I keep seeing. I imagine it's soundtrack to Christmas time is here again. So <laughs> just Porter Wagner sitting out by his lake. Arrested development. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but they did, in fact, continue to work together to a lesser extent. Dolly released the album Say Forever You'll Be Mine in 1975, uh, and he produced that. And also, 1977 was a big year for Dolly. She released her album Here You Come Again, which was a big country and mainstream success. And she also appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and won the CMA Entertainer of the Year Award in 1978. And all this solo success for Dolly when Porter's career was really kind of floundering. He ended up suing her for $3 million in 1979. 
And Dolly told WNYC, he sued me because of what I had done to his TV show. I don't remember exactly what all the legalities were. He was my manager, so he was suing me for future royalties because I'd signed. I don't even know what I signed. I was young and silly. And I guess part of Porter's claims were true. He said that their contract had said that if she left his TV show, he was entitled to a percentage of her earnings and to continue on as her manager for five years, during which time she couldn't enter into any contract concerning her musical career without his written approval. Wow, that is a strict contract for a TV show gig. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is the uh, the era of, uh, as John Mulaney so indelibly put it, You'll give me a whole Cadillac for the rights to all my songs, Mr. Barry Gordy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, seriously. But let I me mean, like it or not, he did have contracts, so he did have a case. And in court, he claimed that Dolly was the reason he canceled his road show. And this is insane. He claimed that she broke into his offices of their production company and stole 130 demos of music. Whether or not. <laughs> I mean, I would. that's a lost dolly movie or tv special i would like right? to see dolly the cat burglar top five heists of all time who stole their who broke into the spice girls this is spice, spice girls, girls did yeah. that when, when they got out of the early management people stealing their demos from the record company there's top definitely more of all time <laughs> well whether or not that's actually true or not and i kind of want it to be i'm gonna let you i'm, I'm happy for you and i'm gonna let you finish <laughs> But Dolly Parton had one of the best demo heists of all time. <laughs> I, I mean, I would like to believe that, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I believe she could do it. Either yes. the Either the night guard was just so charmed that he let her in. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, there was no... Or she's like a lockpick and, and just knows how to break into buildings. <laughs> Both of those are Drawing the equally... circle on the window. Yeah, and exactly. Just like... Both of those are equally plausible. <laughs> Dolly Parton in uh, Entrapment doing the <laughs> under the lasers. Under the lasers is exactly what I was going to say. But she has to duck really low because her hair is so big. That's a great. Let's all savor that image for a moment. So whether or not we that actually occurred, uh, they were still songs that Dolly herself had written, but he was claiming the profits to them. So, I mean, spiritually, if not legally... She was definitely entitled to those songs. Dolly ended up settling for $1 million, mostly to avoid a lengthy court battle, but she didn't have that much money lying around, so she spent years paying off Porter in installments. And I guess additionally, as part of the settlement, she signed over a lot of their old unreleased duet recordings, and this allowed Porter to make quite a bit of money off their old work by releasing another album, Porter and Dolly, in 1980. Title needs work. <laughs> What a dick move. I know. I know. Especially given this next part. Yeah. He, uh, woman is made of light. (laughs) Porter, Porter, by the dawn of the 80s, he really needed the cash influx because, you know, as Dolly's star continued to rise, at this point, she'd appeared in the movies Nine to Five, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and Rhinestone. Uh, Porter was dropped by his record label, RCA, and he had landed in extremely dire financial straits. He owed the IRS almost half a million dollars at one point. What is it about country guys not paying their taxes? I don't, George Jones? Yeah, I don't know. So to raise money, he started selling off his assets, like his publishing company, which Dolly actually stepped in and bought purely just to help him pay off his debts. And And then, then... And then, and then, years later, after he dug himself out of his deep financial hole, when Porter finally had enough money to buy his publishing back again, Dolly just gave them to him as a gift. 
the man who sued her for $3 million and mm. made money off of her for songs that he did not write. <clears throat> Wagner eventually went back to Parton and begged her for forgiveness. Uh, he called the lawsuit the worst thing I ever did, which I agree. Uh, she, in fact, forgave him because she is made of light, and the pair had a really wonderful reconciliation at the end of his life. Celebrating 50 years of his performances at the Grand Ole Opry in 2007, she sang I Will Always Love You to him. Uh, by way of introduction, she said, if it hadn't been for Porter, I wouldn't have written this song. This is a song that means a great deal to me, and we all love you, Porter. This is the part that really gets me, getting verklempt. Wagner was sick with cancer at the time. He entered hospice care later that year, and Dolly was one of the last people to see him before he died in October. Uh, she told WNYC, I asked everybody to go out, and I just talked to him myself. I knew he could hear me, but he was not able to talk to me. I could tell, and he could touch my hand and squeeze it a little bit. I just told him that I loved him, and I appreciated him. I said I was sorry for all the things we had been through, and I was so happy that we had become friends again, and that I would always remember and treasure him. We had a special bond. I was happy that I was there. Ugh, Tommy. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you. Do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Despite Whitney Houston becoming the artist who is now arguably more associated with the song than Parton at this point, other people got to it first. In one case, almost. Uh, Notably, Elvis Presley, when Parton's version became a hit in 1974, had expressed interest in covering the song. Dolly told CMT in 2006, Elvis loved I Will Always Love You, and he wanted to record it. I got the word that he was going to record it, and I was so excited. I told everybody I knew, Elvis is going to record my song. You're not going to believe who's recording my song. And she added, I thought it was a done deal because he don't just say he's going to do something. (laughs) Anyway, he sent word that he loved it and he was doing it. They get to town and they call and ask if I want to come to the session. And of course, I was going to go. Then Colonel Tom, Colonel Tom Parker, Presley's manager, gets on the phone and said, you know, I really love this song. And I said, you cannot imagine how excited I am about this. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me as a songwriter. Then he said... Now, you know we have a rule that Elvis don't record anything, that we don't take half the publishing. And I was really quiet. I said, well, now it's already been a hit. I've already wrote it, and I already published it. And this is the stuff I'm leaving for my family when I'm dead and gone. That money goes in for stuff for my brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews, so I can't give up half the publishing. And he said, well, then we can't record it. I guess they thought since they already had it prepared and already had it ready that I would do it. Uh, did you know this? I, I, I didn't know that this was a, apparently quite a common thing, but in Elvis's case, it was tied up in the publishing company that they own because he re- either refused to record anything that wasn't owned by that publishing company or made you sign away half your publishing for when he covered it. I mean, I'm sure that was a kernel thing. I'm sure Elvis yeah. had no idea and didn't care. Well, and a Dick Clark thing, apparently. Well. Oh, I mean, like Elvis personally, I'm sure would have oh, no, you yeah. know, no idea that was occurring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, uh, yeah, Dick Clark uh, supposedly would accept cuts of publishing for American bandstand placement. That is crazy. I mean, payola is one thing, and getting cash to yeah. appear on your show, but to actually own a piece of the song feels like. In how perpetuity. did you avoid all the uh, all the payola scandal stuff in the late fifties with like because Alan they Freed. crucify? I was going to say because they crucified Alan Freed for it, uh, and Alan Freed the was scapegoat. swarthy and sweaty, and they went, "That's our guy." And then Dick Clark was over there with his America's teenager gross rictus grin. Alan Freed, the man, if I recall correctly, who coined the term rock and roll with his Moondog shows. Moondog, Moondog matinee. Moondog matinee in Cleveland, yeah. That's why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's in Cleveland. Uh, Parton told W Magazine in 2021 that she told W. I'm, w, w Magazine. Uh, fool me once. Uh, I said, I'm sorry, but I can't give you the publishing. I wanted to hear Elvis sing it, and it broke my heart. I'm, I think I'm doing Holly Hunter in... Oh, brother, where art thou? I cried all night, but I had to keep that copyright in my pocket. You have to take care of your business. Everybody's going to use you if they can. These are my songs. They're like my children, and I expect them to support me when I'm old. Again, business sense. Mm. Uh, this is interesting. She added that Priscilla Presley at one point, because they were they became friends, uh, she told her that when 
Priscilla told Dolly that when she and Elvis divorced, Elvis sang, I will always love you to her. Wow. And then in a classic Dolly quip, she joked to CMT that when Whitney's version of the song came out, it made Dolly enough money. It made me enough money to buy Graceland. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone who did successfully cover the song to much consequence as we will reveal in a moment was Linda Ronstadt her future trio partner who put out the first non-Dolly version of the song on her 1975 record Prisoner in Disguise that version was not released as a single but this album was quite successful it peaked on Billboard album chart at number 4 and number 2 on the country album chart Parton also released the song as part of the soundtrack to Best Little Whorehouse in Texas in 1982, making it the second decade in which that song would hit number one. And this is really interesting. The medium site, No Words, No Song, made a really fascinating point about Linda Ronstadt's role in setting the stage for this, one of the best-selling songs in history, and also one of the best-selling albums of all time, Hotel California by the Eagles. The Eagles, of course, started as... Linda's backing band. And to quote the website, Linda Ronstadt played a pivotal role in making country music accessible to a pop and rock audience. Her role as the interface between country music, pop, and rock led her former backing band becoming the monster-selling group we know today as the Eagles. And without Linda Ronstadt, we'd never have had Hotel California, still one of the best-selling albums of all time. <laughs> but she also played a pivotal, if entirely unconscious, role in making I Will Love You into one of the best-selling records in history after Kevin Costner heard Linda Ronstadt sing her version of Dolly Parton's song, and he was the one who was producing The Bodyguard in addition to starring in it. And he had the idea to have Whitney Houston, his co-star, sing I Will Always Love You. So Linda Ronstadt directly and indirectly responsible for one of the best-selling albums of all time and one of the best-selling singles of all time. Just a brief segue, but Linda Ronstadt might be the Forrest Gump of, like, 20th century popular music. In addition to all of that stuff you just mentioned, she she was nominated for a Tony for her performance of Pirates Pirate of Penzance, Penzance yeah. with Philip Glass, mm -hmm. which links her to Gilbert and Sullivan, 20th century minimalism, and she collaborated with Nelson Riddle, famous for all of the Sinatra. Uh, Sinatra big band arrangements, which links her to that era. And she, uh, because she is of Mexican descent, has done a boatload mm -hmm. of stuff in that musical tradition. She has a Latin Grammy as a, for a Lifetime Achievement Award. Like Linda Ronstadt is like Miss American Music, 19... 19, uh, 19th, 20th, 20th century, century ed edition. Well, also, don't forget, her first hit with the Stone Ponies was uh, Different Drum, written by Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. Oh, my God. What a woman. What an incredible woman. Yeah, she's she is so endlessly fascinating to me, man. I mean, the stuff with Jamie, she she toured with uh, Toots and the Maidles. Right. We just mentioned she covered a Jimmy Cliff song. Like, she is... So there, so now we get her in Jamaica. Like, Jesus Christ, it's just, she is literally Forrest Gump. Dated Jerry Brown? Yeah, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> I'm just going through her Wikipedia page, like, finding out what other countries I can connect her to. Did you see the documentary, <laughs> The Sound of My Own Voice, I think it's called? No, because I will weep openly. That yeah. is the saddest. I have such a, a thing about people, like, separated from their gift by medical stuff out of their control, like Charles Mingus and and her. Uh, it is just the fact that she um, can't sing anymore. That's so ungodly sad. Wait, I uh, want to, I, I rarely do this. 
I remember I was supremely lucky to interview her. I remember asking her, she's had incredible duet partners over the years, Emmy Lou Harris and Dolly among them. Aaron Neville. I, so there's Aaron, Aaron Neville. Neville, yes. And so that's that's New Orleans. Oh, right. Yeah. And I just asked her sort of casually, like, what is it like to sing with somebody? What is that relationship like between two singers when they're singing? It was very intimate, I imagine. Because she, I mean, you hear her in interviews and stuff. I mean, she has incredibly articulate and insightful observations about what it means to be a singer. I was curious of what she would say. And she said, it's a very intimate relationship. First of all, I learned so much singing from Emmy Lou, and I learned so much emoting from Emmy Lou. When she sings, it's like a prayer. It's like your last desperate prayer for a reprieve from the guillotine. And she helped me just mm. lay it all out. And I learned a lot of mu my musicianship from her too. Relationships with somebody that you've sung with like that is as intimate as sex, but it's not sex. It's different, but it's very, very, very intimate. I mean, you feel like you know somebody. I feel that way about people that have written songs that I've recorded, like Jimmy Webb. I feel so close to him. He feels like a brother to me because I've sung those songs. He's a great songwriter. I just thought that was really cool to hear yeah. what a singer of that caliber thinks about blending her instrument with another person. I just was curious what she'd say about it. Her last song is uh, that's out there is on a, the Chieftains, a Chieftains record. So there she's in Ireland too. <laughs> wow. Just incredible stuff. You should, I mean, there's I a, know it, it will devastate you, but you should watch that documentary. It's really good. Nope. I don't <laughs> do it. I'm not going to do it. Uh, where were we? Yes. Funnily enough, in 2019, Ms. Patty LaBelle revealed on Watch What Happens Live that when I Will Always Love You was being pitched for the soundtrack of The Bodyguard, before it went to Whitney Houston, it was offered to her by Dolly. She told Andy Cohen, uh, I said to Dolly, oh, yes, I want to do that song, honey. But before I could say real yes, it was in the movie and Whitney killed it. I was so happy Whitney got that song and it just went like it did. But Dolly Parton and I had planned, Patty, you're going to sing that song. And then she said, next. That's how show business is. According to production notes in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences library files, writer-producer Lawrence Kasdan conceived of the script for The Bodyguard in 1975. Inspired by the 1961 Akira Kurosawa film Yojimbo. I didn't know that. Nope, me neither. Whose title literally translates to Bodyguard. <laughs> Originally, he wanted to make this movie with Steve McQueen and Diana Ross. That rules. That would have been a significantly better movie, I feel like. It was rejected literally dozens of times. The figure <laughs> that I have seen out there is 67. Wow. It's not <laughs> before, that bad. <laughs> before it was finally optioned by Warner Brothers in 1978, but it sat on the shelf for years until Kevin Cosner came across it and fell in love. He didn't have the clout to get it made during the first part of the 80s, but after his imperial era, uh, 1987's The Untouchables, 1988's Bull Durham, 1989's Field of Dreams, and 1990 Dances with Wolves, I don't think I realized all those movies were back-to-back. -back. Holy shit, no wonder he was like the biggest actor in the world by this period. And then on his way down. I hate Kevin Costner. I know you do. Yeah, charisma-free. But um, after that four-picture run, he could have uh, cast himself as Divine in a, <laughs> pink, in a Pink Flamingos remake, and it would have rang the cherries at the box office. <laughs> Uh, so consequently, by 1991, it is announced in the trades that The Bodyguard was going into production starring Kevin Costner and 
Whitney Houston in her screen debut. Madonna was rumored to uh, have expressed interest in that role. But People Magazine, in a report from the time, said, have you seen the, the part when he's backstage in Truth or Dare in the documentary? No. There's this famous part in Truth or Dare when Kevin Costner's, like, backstage at... Uh, um, at, at a Madonna show and he's like you know he's got his like tucked in t-shirt and his like dad <laughs> jeans and he like says something kind of clowny or like just square he's just square and she like does like a she like mugs at the camera when his back is turned like gagging face or like makes some kind of and they kept it in the movie and that scotched her supposedly it's ob- obviously I want to say like scotched her chances of being in the film what a dumb idiot most powerful man in Hollywood you're going to release a movie that that shows you uh, clowning on him behind his back. I mean, that's that probably, that's what she wants. I mean, to show that she doesn't kowtow to anyone, especially any man. Sure. Yeah. And, well, and, I mean, you know. honestly, that's probably one of my favorite things about Madonna. She clowned on Kevin Costner. Yeah. Well, you know, that's why he made Dances with Wolves and, you know, she made Shanghai Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I just... Have we talked about how much I love Evita? No, but that scans. Moving on. Initially, Costner told CBS of Houston, I saw her like every red-blooded male would see her. I thought she was really pretty. See, something kind of clowny. There you go. He's just a square. He's a square dude. No one ever said he was like, you know, Jim Jarmusch. It's just like... Yeah, he's like the kind of guy who sees it. Yeah, I think that's a really pretty lady. Um, she said that she uh, initially planned to to break into acting via smaller roles at first, not co-headlining with the biggest male draw in Hollywood uh, in a enormous blockbuster. And she delayed accepting the part for a year. And he called her himself. And there's a really sweet uh, interview where she talks about it. She was like, Kevin, I don't want to do this and and fail. And he's he told her, I'll help you. I'm not going to let you fail, which I think is really sweet. Um, Context. Uh, Context alert. Uh, Whitney Houston's second album, self-titled Whitney. Some kind of like sound effect for that. It should should be the, make it really obnoxious. Make it the the siren sound from Kill Bill that I think is from a a, a spaghetti western. Context alert. W-C-Y-N. Context in the sleaze. Mornings with context in the sleaze. Uh, (laughs) I'm getting punchy. I'm sundowning. Houston's second album, Whitney, made her the first woman in history to debut at number one on the Billboard 200 albums chart and the first artist to enter the albums chart at number one in both the U.S. and the U.K., and thanks to I Want to Dance with Somebody, Didn't We Almost Have It All, So Emotional, and Where Do Broken Hearts Go, she became the first woman to generate four number one singles from one album. Then she embarked on the Moment wow. of Truth World Tour, which beat out grossing tours from both Madonna and Tina Turner. Consequently, by 1987, she was number eight on the highest earning entertainers list of Forbes. She was the highest earning African-American woman overall, highest earning musician and the third highest entertainer after Bill Cosby and Eddie Murphy. That's a dated list. Uh, (laughs) But four years later, her star had dimmed somewhat. Yeah. It's weird to think of this now, but she was 
kind of at a comparative low ebb around the time she did The Bodyguard. And some of this was due to changing tastes. Mariah Carey, as we talked about at the top of the episode, was sort of the new diva on the scene. And she employed some of the same people like Narada Michael Walden, who'd overseen Whitney's debut in her early hits. And this led to some frostiness between them in the press, including Whitney's immortal line when asked what she thinks of Mariah Carey. What do I think of her? I don't think of her. <laughs> Just pretty great. Yeah. Is that the that's the Don Draper meme? Yeah. yeah. You know, I pity you. I don't think of you at all. Elevator door closes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but also a major factor in Whitney's career dip was uh pretty much garden variety racism. At that time in the late 80s, Whitney had endured a tremendous amount of criticism for appearing far too removed from R&B. A time profile from the mid-80s called Whitney Houston, quote, the prom queen of soul. And that wasn't meant as a nice thing. (laughs) The critic Mark Anthony Neal wrote that, quote, there was an effort to make Whitney the unblack artist. And as a result, some black radio stations refused to play her for a time. And in 1989, she was booed at the Soul Train Awards, where the hostile crowd called her Whitey instead of Whitney. So this movie was kind of a do-or-die moment that revitalized her career, or at least gave her one last lunge towards multi-platinum megastardom before uh, other problems took over. Before the darkness. Yes. Uh, Cosner told Yahoo in 2014, it wasn't Whitney's in moment. It might have been easier two years earlier at her peak, but after that movie, she became, I think, one of the biggest stars in the world. Um, Another clowny thing to say. (laughs) I I understand your hatred of him, but honestly, just even some of this stuff just kind of makes me like him more. He did not play ball when people were trying to point out the racial dynamic, the interracial thing to him. And not that he had to after, again, his that four year stretch. But, um, you know, it was part of Kasdan's original script. And Cosner was like, it's a love story. There's no race stuff. He's like, he said, he told Yahoo, everybody alerted me to the fact that Whitney was black, which, which I knew. <laughs> okay. And then he, he refused. And there's a DVD, there's a, a behind the scenes interview on the DVD release where he said he refused to uh, film a scene that uh, the studio wanted to put in that would quote, explain the black and white thing. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, there was also a controversy that um, because her face isn't seen on the movie poster. Oh, it's like a it's like a revert from reverse or three quarter shot or some of the promotional materials like she's not seen her full face and seen. And it was people were saying it was like uh, they were like trying to hide the fact that it was, you know, there was they didn't want to have a, a, a white man and a black woman on the on this movie poster. That was a romance romance thing. And um, again, Whitney was like, my name is on the poster. People know I'm black. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, it's so, so funny to think about this. And in, in, it's such a weird movie in context because it, it has this enormous smash hit song. The movie is widely thought of as a turd, <laughs> but it's still this incredible weird moment in, in history. Is there a bigger soundtrack that's been tied to a worse movie? I don't think so. I really want to stop for a moment and think on this. Yeah. Batman Forever, maybe, with Kiss oh, from the Rose. Oh, that's good. That's very good. Number one is, in fact, The Bodyguard. Well, yeah. That. N- number two, Saturday Night Fever. Number three is Purple Rain. Number four is Forrest Gump. Number five is Dirty Dancing. Six Those are all Titanic. good movies. Those are, oh. Seven is Lion King. Eight is Footloose. Maybe Footloose? 
Nine is Top Gun. Ten is O Brother. Eleven is Grease. Twelve is Waiting to Exhale. It's okay. Maybe Waiting to Exhale. Uh, Little Mermaid. I would nominate, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, possibly Help, the Beatles movie. It's not a great movie. I mean, Mm. I love it. It's not a great movie. And it yeah. sold because it was a Beatles. Property. I was going to say they were too it big sold, to fail at the time. Tre- well, it sold tremendous amount. Yeah, Space Jam, City of Angels. Oh, so I Space just, Jam was, I believe, I can okay, fly. I can fly. Was there anything else on there uh, that was like Monica's? Monica's for you, I will. Oh. Um, for me, the Wu Tang Clan singing uh, "Hit 'Em High," which is the theme song of uh, to the the Monstars, and Seal doing "Fly Like an Eagle." I forgot about song. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget. Uh, City of Angels, which is the Google, the, the Iris, uh, Iris, uh, the jazz singer, your beloved Evita. And then uh, Hamilton, the original, original Broadway cast recording. I think we can call it at bodyguard actually. Yeah. Hmm. I can't think of anything else. Yeah. All right. And amazingly, considering it is the gem of the soundtrack, I Will Always Love You was not even supposed to be on the soundtrack. She was Wild. originally supposed to sing Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. I love that song, do man. I do. I do. Um, I love David Ruffin. but um, Jimmy Ruffin. Jimmy Ruffin. Yeah, I was confusing him with... Uh, Get your Ruffin straight. Get my... Ah! Uh, rough and tumble. Uh, this was the movie's music supervisor, Maureen Crow, talking to the New York Post in 2022. She said, but when you slow what becomes of the broken hearted down, it's like a dirge. And it had been covered for Fried Green Tomatoes by Paul Young in 1991, just a year earlier. So it was climbing the charts when we were shooting The Bodyguard. So we couldn't use that song because it just seemed like we ripped off Fried Green Tomatoes. And Maureen Crow suggested, I will always love you to Kevin Costner playing him Linda Ronstadt's cover. And this would be the third time that I Will Always Love You has appeared in a movie. Dolly Parton's version plays in a bar in Martin Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore in 1974, which predates Dolly's re-recorded version of I Will Always Love You for the Best Little Whorehouse soundtrack in 1982, I think. Yeah. Isn't that so funny that it was in a Scorsese movie before it became in any of these other movies? Yeah, and what's really interesting, what's really telling to me about that quote is that she, it seems to suggest that whatever they were going to put in that scene, they were going to strip down and do it as a big ballad. So that was like always sort of the, uh, I guess, intent of the um, of the cover in that scene was to be like, okay, we're going to do this big showstopper. showstopper. Yeah. So Costner liked what he heard and he passed it on to the soundtrack's super producer, Usually I don't like that word, but it's really the only word for him. David Foster. 16 Grammy time winning David Foster. Wow. And he told ABC in 2012 that, quote, I made a demo and I ran to Houston's trailer because I was so excited. I said, Whitney, I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. And I played it for her. And of course, her face lit up because she knew and I knew that I'd gotten it. And Dolly picks up the story talking to CMT. She said, Kevin Costner and his secretary are the ones that love the song. They had another song that was going to go in that place. And someone had recorded that song that they were going to use. And they were just in a panic at the last minute. So they asked me about the song. I sent it and I didn't hear anything more. But she had a really interesting uh, condition for its use in the movie. Yeah. So she, uh, she told Oprah in 2020, so David Foster was going to produce it. And so I called David up. 
I said, now, David, make sure that they do the last verse because I did it as a recitation. And a lot of people will say, I can't recite. I can't do recitation. I assume she means spoken word yeah. by, that, by that term. So they leave it out. Linda Ronstadt had recorded it and left that whole verse out. So I said to David Foster, make sure that if you record this song that you put that verse in. That's the verse that goes, I hope life treats you kind and I hope you have all you've ever dreamed of. And I wish you joy and happiness. But above all this... I wish you love. What a nice thing to say. Especially to a dude who is going to see you five years later. Yep. Foster told Entertainment Weekly in 2012 that it added another 40 seconds into the song, which was troubling because they had already budgeted it into that, like how it was going to work into the, the scene. So they had to re, uh, re, like, what do you, re-edit it to yeah. get the whole scene. Uh, it was actually Kevin Costner's idea to have Whitney Houston start the song a cappella, which is very unusual. Uh, something that David Foster initially hated. He said, I thought using no music at the beginning was a stupid idea. That's him talking to ABC. And I hate being wrong, but when you're wrong, you got to be wrong big. Because when you're wrong big, it means you get to be right big, too. And the song <laughs> certainly ended up being very right. And Clive Davis, Whitney's mentor, label chief, executive producer, take your pick, told Entertainment Weekly that, quote, radio approached my promotion team and asked us to take off that acapella beginning, and I absolutely refused. And Whitney's musical director and band leader, Ricky Minor, told DW, we flew the rhythm section of the band and the sax player to the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami, where they were shooting. Also where the Beatles taped an Ed Sullivan episode there in 1964. <laughs> Whitney came out, sang the song. I think we did it twice. And what everyone hears is the first take. Uh, and Kirk Wallen, the, sac the saxophonist, saxophonist? <laughs> Never heard it pronounced that that's way. How, that's now how Roger it's... Waters pronounced sax saxophonist. Oh, like how he says it. Aluminum. Oh, yeah. aluminium. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. why. I gotta, I'm gonna start using that. I mean, it kind of sounds better than saxophonist. Saxophonist seems like a made up word. Saxophonist. Right? <laughs> anyway, the guy who played sax on that song, <laughs> he said, We got to Miami and Whitney insisted on singing the song live in the film, and she wanted her band to be playing along with her. And David Foster also told ABC when they were recording, I will always love you, quote, I was standing right beside Whitney's mother's sissy and she turned to me and she said, I, I love this. I don't know who you are and why you're here or what you are to me, but you are witnessing greatness right here. <laughs> sissy Houston, even in this moment of triumph for her daughter, giving kind of a withering dressing down of her producer. That's amazing. But David Foster said she was right. Yeah, she was. <laughs> You've actually found another version of yeah, I Will Always I mean, Love that, You in this uh, movie. I didn't know that. Another sneaky uh, arrow in the quiver of Kevin Costner being secretly cool, maybe. He's uh, apparently he um, they were in a country that, you know, there's the scene where they're in the bar and he wanted a version that was going to be a little bit more like rootsy and countryish, but that wasn't Dolly's. So he got his buddy John. He was he's I guess he's friends with John Doe from X from Legendary, one of the L.A. punk bands. Uh, you know them and Black Flag. Uh, John Doe frontman to record a cover of this. So that's weird. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> the two genders. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Too much information in just a moment.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you. Do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then Clive Davis, this is is another funny uh, uh, behind-the-scenes tidbit. Clive Davis told Jimmy Fallon in December 2022, which seems insane that Clive Davis is still alive. I interviewed him last year. I went to his apartment. I knew you. It was 90. This this must have been the second time you've interviewed him? Fourth. Holy s***. They offer offer him around a lot. Yeah, rich people do live a long time. Yeah, he's still still very, very together. Cogent. Well, the crazy thing about him is... Like, well, you ask him a question and he'll say whatever he wants to say, whether or not it relates or not. But he just, <laughs> yeah. he's got these like ever present sunglasses <laughs> and he speaks in unbroken paragraphs. Mm. And it's almost like I, I have this theory that he has like some kind of almost like Google Glass, like teleprompter in his glasses because <laughs> he's just like, it's unbelievable. Just unbroken blocks of texts it's like yeah his stories i mean they're obviously well-honed stories and they they all fall into one of two genres which was 
you know, somebody was right. some, somebody did what I said and it was right and it was a huge success and somebody didn't do what I said and it was a giant disaster and now and now I I shame them in every public event by incorporating that their misstep into my speeches and they wrote me the nicest letter and I really have to have it framed telling them like, you know, apologizing and uh, yeah. My first time I was ever with Clive Davis was I God, I sound like Clive Davis now. Dude loves the name drop. Uh it was him and Aretha Franklin and they were on stools. About oh, you've told me this before. Ten, ten feet in front of me, because there was a camera, <laughs> and I was just standing behind the camera, and I was talking to them both, which was wild. Having Aretha like sing in front of me was incredible. And, and it's over, and everybody's kind of leaving, and Clive waves me over, like you know, does the thing with his finger, like come, come here, come here. And I come, and I I step closer to him. I'm like three feet away, and he's come closer two feet away, come closer, like right next to him. And then he puts his hand on my shoulder and uses me as a human crutch to get down off of his stool and then just literally pats my head and walks away. Jesus. Ah. <laughs> uh. But anyway, Clive Davis on Jimmy Fallon in December oh, 2022 yeah. talking about <laughs> I will always love you. <laughs> Take it away. Yeah. So he said the version that came out was actually the rough mix that uh, David Foster sent him as a work in progress. Yeah, uh, He said, right after Whitney sang it, he sent me a rough mix. He said, look, don't get demo ice, they call it, <laughs> which I assume means liking the demo more than the ver- the finished version. Or don't hate it because it's just a demo. I couldn't tell. Uh, yeah, yeah, either or. Uh, he, he, he is 90. Yeah, He says, David Foster continued, I'm working on it. I'm going to be adding instruments. So days passed, two weeks passed. Warner Brothers Studio is calling me. We've got to come with a single. The movie's about to open. I call David. I say, give me your last shot. And to me, it came off a little slick with the added instrumentation. So when Warner's called and I had to make that decision with the acapella intro, with the raw instrumentation, that became the single. Believe me, David was appalled. (laughs) But as soon as it came on the radio, he got more calls than he ever received in his life. So there you go. That's the second category of Clive Davis. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I made a decision. This other person was wrong. I am great. Uh, Maureen Crows told popdisciple.com, I don't think anybody thought the song would be a hit. Long before the release of the film, Whitney's most recent album had underperformed. It only sold 6 million copies, which was a big disappointment at the time. (laughs) Music industry, 30-year snapshot. People were like, she's over, people. She's over. The song came out and instantly went to number one before The Bodyguard came out. I still have a picture from the ad. It's very rare in film and soundtracks to be a number one record before film sees the light of day. David Foster told Entertainment Weekly, When you think about how many rules that song broke for radio, it was a ballad, it was an R&B singer doing a country song, it's got that acapella part, it's long, it was a perfect storm. I don't want to over-dramatize, but it is the love song of the century. Uh, The song is, as we mentioned earlier, definitely the most fondly remembered thing about the film, which has a 38 from both Rotten Tomatoes (laughs) and Metacritic. Uh, 13 Raspberry Awards, I believe. But Houston's version of the song peaked at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for a then-record-breaking 14 weeks, eventually becoming her first diamond single and the best-selling single by a woman in the U.S., with over 20 million copies sold, it became the best-selling single of all time by a female solo artist, and she won the Grammy for Record of the Year in 1994. 
Yeah, for a time, I Will Always Love You was second only to We Are the World as the biggest selling single ever. And then it was bumped to number three in 1997 with Elton John's Candle in the Wind remix. Or not remix, Candle in the Wind 1997. Candle in the Wind 97. There we go. Terrible song. This song set sales and chart records in pretty much every developed country that keeps records of such things. It's, it would be quicker to name the song the countries it didn't go to number one in. Uh, and in the weeks following Houston's death in 2012, the single returned to the Billboard Hot 100 after almost 20 years at number seven, becoming the first posthumous top 10 single since 2001 and marking the third decade of its appearance. Uh, adorably, Dolly didn't hear anything for months after granting Kevin Costner the use of her song. And she said, I didn't know if they had done it or whatever, she told Oprah before going on to explain the moment that she heard it for the first time while driving. She said, my heart just started to beat so fast. And then when she got into I Will Always Love You, I think she means the chorus, when that opened up. I realized that was my song. It was the most overwhelming thing. I was shot so full of adrenaline and energy. I had to pull off the road because I was afraid I would wreck. So I pulled over quick as I could to listen to that whole song. I could not believe how she did that. I mean, how beautiful it was that my little song had turned into that. So that was a major, major thing. Yeah, I uh, I mean, I guess that's kind of common. Like you you grant permission and then, they, then they're like, eh, yeah, it's not going to happen. But. Yeah. You think they would have told her? Uh, apparently, and I couldn't find the primary source for this, and this bothered me as well. Uh, tabloids at the time reported that there was a feud between Parton and Houston over the song. Dolly told CNN in 2003, there's a tabloid story saying that Whitney and I were in a big feud. She said it was her song, and I said it was mine. That's not what I read. I read that at some point, Dolly had promised to not perform the song live while Whitney's version was out and charting. And um, then she went back on it. And that's why there was a feud between them. But it um, doesn't seem to be true because uh, by 1993, Houston was making very glowing remarks about Dolly in Rolling Stone. She said, I talked to Dolly Parton by phone not too long ago. She said to me, and then she does a Dolly Parton imitation, which I love. <laughs> that Rolling Stone put that in a parenthetical. Uh, Whitney, I just want to tell you something. I'm just so honored that you did my song. I don't know what to tell you, girl. I said, well, Dolly, you wrote a beautiful song. And she said, yeah, but it never did that well for me. It did well for you because you put all that stuff into it. <laughs> which is a very Dolly thing to say. Houston continued in that interview. I think Dolly Parton is one hell of a writer and a hell of a singer. I was so concerned when I sang her song how she'd feel about it in terms of the arrangement, my licks, my flavor. When she said she was floored, that meant so much to me. Aww. It's a rare a happy mutual... moment for a Whitney. person. Yeah, person who didn't yeah. have a very happy life in a lot of ways. In an interview with Q Magazine, Dolly said she was, quote, blown away by Whitney's version. She said, the way she took that simple song of mine and made it such a mighty thing, it almost became her song. Some writers say, ooh, I hate the way they've done that to my song, or that version wasn't what I had in mind. I just think it's wonderful that people can take a song and do it so many different ways. Forbes reported that Parton earned $10 million from Houston's cover of this song, which tracks. I was going to say, that almost sounds low to me. But I love this. Some of it uh, went back to the black community in Nashville. She told Andy Cohen in 2021, I bought a property down in what was the black area of town. It was mostly just black families and people that lived down around there. Just off the beaten path from 16th Avenue. And I thought, well, I'm going to buy this place, the whole strip mall. And I thought this is the perfect place for me to be, considering it was Whitney. I thought this is great. 
I'm just going to be down here with her people who are my people as well. So I just love the fact that I spent that money on a complex. I think this is the house that Whitney built. Um, and this was a 6,000 square foot complex in Nashville that she bought in February of 97. And a Nashville historian named David Hewing told uh, USA Today that this was groundbreaking because of someone of Dolly's stature coming in and investing money to property in that part of Nashville was like a really rare thing. He said Dolly could have bought for a property anywhere in Nashville. And at the time, it probably would have made more sense for who she was to buy a room where all the recording companies are and the artist management companies are. It is truly a statement that Dolly would buy over there well before it became populated with entertainment, restaurants, and residential neighborhoods. I don't know. Is that weird? Should we take that out? It's hard to make that sound like Dolly didn't just come in and... Gentrify the place. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, I I mean, it's definitely interesting, you know... uh, It is sort of the eternal question of white people investing in black communities. Is it good that there, there is now money in this area and that a business is in this area and that people who, you know, are going to Dolly's office for work are spending money in the community for lunch and what have you and parking this, that, and the other, or is it a rich white woman coming in and buying property in a black neighborhood? I, I mean, clearly she feels the first way about it. So your mileage may vary. <laughs> we'll put that one right under the 70 million books and the vaccine on Dolly's <laughs> list of charitable charitable accomplishments. Uh, something about this song, less charitably, appears to uh, get people arrested. In 1993, the New York Times reported on two separate incidents in the UK related to I Will Always Love You. A 20-year-old fan of the song was jailed for a week in Britain after refusing to turn down her stereo. And then, the same year, another woman in London threw her neighbor's stereo out of the fourth floor window and then was attacked by said neighbor because the neighbor's son wouldn't stop playing the song. Uh, That woman pleaded guilty to assault and was ordered to move. (laughs) Ordered to move? Then, in 2013, 20 years later, a cross-country American Airlines flight from LAX to JFK was forced to make an emergency landing in Kansas City after a woman on the flight wouldn't stop singing songs, including I Will Always Love You, at the top of her lungs, and was cuffed by an air marshal. Another fun criminal twist to the song. It was part of Saddam Hussein's 2002 election campaign, uh, a a bogus state-sponsored, quote, referendum on his leadership in Iraq, which was included a blitz of broadcasts on the nation's three state-controlled TV stations, utilizing a version of I Will Always Love You sung in Arabic by the Syrian star Maeda Biselis. NPR reported in 2002, it's all over the television, all over the radio. The theme is, everybody loves Saddam. (laughs) 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 And his campaign posters feature big hearts. Wow. One of the the English language newspapers here had a front page editorial today calling Saddam a leader for a heart-shaped land. What does that even mean? (laughs) Wow. I guess, understandably, Whitney Houston's record label filed a complaint with the Iraqi mission to the United Nations. This was 2002. So they presumably replied, we're a little busy. (laughs) 
<laughs> just two people who didn't really need this shit on their plate right now. Yeah. In 2002, Whitney Houston and Rock. I don't know why that tickles me so much. Uh, Parton's other Borscht Belt style quip about the song throughout the years is uh, Whitney can have the credit. I'll take the cash. <laughs> but sadly, she never got to sing it with her. Uh, Dolly told Andy Cohen, I was never asked to perform that with Whitney. I wish that could have happened. I would have loved that, but I don't think I could have come up to sing with her, though. She would have outsung me on that one for sure. And then they did play the song at Houston's funeral, and it serves as the epitaph on her gravestone. And Parton told a Fox affiliate in 2016, the fact that they used it at her funeral just killed me. That's when I really lost it. I was shocked and hurt and disheartened when she passed, but it was one of those things where I hadn't really fell down and wept over it. But when they lifted her coffin and started playing that song, man, it just stabbed me in the heart. I just boo-hooed for every single reason. Her loss, the fact that it was our song, and I was also thinking that was probably what they'd be playing at my funeral, too. It was such an overwhelming emotion. And Dolly released a statement when Whitney died in 2002 that said, Mine is only one of the millions of hearts broken over the death of Whitney Houston. I will always be grateful and in awe of the wonderful performance she did on my song. And I can truly say from the bottom of my heart, Whitney, I will always love you. You will be missed. Mm. Yeah, Jordan, you know, I know both you and I have worked in celebrity journalism. Uh, and so sadly, like the most recent parts of Whitney's memory have been both of us for both of us going through the whole how the sausage is made like celebrity industrial complex of not just her death, but Bobby Christina. Um, yeah. And it's such a truly grim end to such a, a life. So, you know, I'm happy that we, we've managed to skirt all of that. Not unintentionally. Didn't want to dwell on it. It's gross and it's sad and it's sordid. And I'm happy we just got to look at her through the lens of this song. And I'm happy that's how Dolly remembers her. And I'm happy that's how, if we have any degree of justice in the world, she will be remembered. So, folks, thank you for your part in that. Thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. And we will always love you. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. 
It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.